great to see the faithful who can show up the night after New Year's Eve celebrations were sure to happen. Welcome to church, guys. Hey. Well, my name is Ryan. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. I'm so glad that you are here. I, I um, celebrated New Year's Eve the way that most parents do, which is we tune in to the broadcast on the East Coast at 9 o'clock. We celebrate the ball dropping, and then we all go to bed, you know? Uh, that's, that's what the West Coast affords you, uh, and us parents love to take advantage of that, you know? So anyways, welcome. Um, I'm sure many of you are pushing through just a few hours of sleep. Way to be here at church, just making that, that push already in the year. Love to see it. Love to see it. Well, if you brought your Bible, uh, take it out and open up to John chapter 3. We also have some Bibles placed underneath the row in front of you. You can open it up and turn over to John chapter 3. Uh, John is one of the first, uh, it's one of the Gospels, and so the Gospels are the first four books in the New Testament, which start about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, and they go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, if you can't find it, the, no worries, there's no shame in using the table of contents to get there. Uh, Dave usually has the page number, and he can tell you what page to go to, but I forgot to do that this week. My apologies. But table of contents is there for you. All the page numbers are right there. Um, I'm really glad to be with you. Um, on New Year's Day, uh, because honestly, it's coming on the heels of a great Advent season that we had together here as a church, where we were here leaning into the Advent, and I just had a hanging chad of a thought of Advent as I was thinking of, I really wanted to get into, you know, new stuff today, I was like, you know what, there's just so much great Advent. Advent is just a fancy Latin word, which means coming, and so in the month of December, we, we look back towards the coming of Christ, and and, uh, and we look ahead at his future coming that he promised, and You know, it reminded me of a question that I had when I was in college, and I was really contemplating the claims of Christianity for myself. And and one of the big questions I had was, um, if Christianity was true, then um, it it really rests upon the claims of Jesus, right? So if if Jesus of what he said wasn't true, then Christianity could not be true, right? Very logical, very logical at this point. And, And I said, you know what? One of the strange things is, Jesus said he was coming back, and it's been 2,000 years now. Am I the only one who's thought of this, is thinking of this? Like, that's a really, really long time. At what point do we say, hey, he's not coming back? 100 years, 200 years, 500, 1,000, 2,000 years? It's about to be proper, probably 2,000 years at some point in the next decade. 2,000 years? At what point do we say, this guy's not going to keep his promise? Uh, my, my father, actually, one afternoon when my father was 12 years old, his dad said, hey, I'll see you later, son, walked out of the house and never came back. My dad doesn't think he's going to come back still. You know, like, like, at what point does someone say they're coming back and you haven't seen them for a while, you say, hey, they're not coming back anymore. And I was contemplating this question, minor crisis of faith in college. Um, well, this is just called considering Jesus is what I've come to find out, that there's lots of these crises of faith that us as Christians go through throughout the course of our lives. It's just called considering Jesus. It's very normal. And um, I, as I was looking into it and thinking about it, and it over the course of several weeks, I remember coming to this profound conclusion, which went like this. Do you know when the first advent, that's Jesus in a manger, was promised? Do you know when that was promised? I guess you could say it was all the way back at Adam and Eve when the curse is pronounced on the serpent that says, one day uh, the son, uh, one offspring from, from the, this woman will come crush your head, Satan. But that's kind of implicit and not exactly. It's kind of abstract, right? But do you know where it's like 
specifically and explicitly said that this first coming of Christ will come. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 18. It's in the time of Moses. Moses is writing it down. In the time of Moses, which is about how long before Christ actually showed up? 1,500 years. About 1,500 years before. So at the time when in what we read in the New Testament and the Gospel accounts is there were Israelites who had not given up on this 1,500-year-old promise. It was some 1,500 years old at that point. They had not given up on that promise. And so um, last month, we remembered that God came 1,500 years after, after he explicitly said he would, and we looked ahead. We remember that he did that. We looked ahead to another thousands-year-old promise, thousands promise that he is going to keep. So that's what we did last month. And what is our waiting, actually, between these Advents supposed to look like? That's the big question. What is it supposed to look like? And um, Howard Thurman, uh, this is a great theologian and, and poet, mentor to Martin Luther King Jr., actually, um, author of Jesus and the Disinherited Book. If, if you're looking for books to add to your reading list in 2023, um, Jesus and the Disinherited is incredible. Um, but here's a poet, and he wrote a poem on this, which I just love. I wanted to read it to you guys today. He said, When the song of the angels is stilled, so after baby Jesus has come, after the angels have pronounced it, when the song is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes have returned home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, then the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among people, and to make music in the heart. And so we come to New Year's. We come to New Year's, and it's time for the work of Christmas to begin. The work to be done by us between the advents of Christ. But I'm actually not here to add to your resolutions today, okay? Like, I've, I, I, anybody who knows me knows that I love New Year's. I love fresh starts. I often do, like, in, in different months throughout the year, I'm like, okay, it's a new month. What are my resolutions this month? You know, I'm, I'm not here to actually add to your lists. Um, I think they're actually being called New Year's intentions now, so we don't feel as bad when we can't fulfill them. And I think that's great, you know, because most of them will fade away, you know. But I love the turning of each year specifically because it illuminates something of our human nature. It illuminates that all of us long for and desire change in our lives, in us, in some way, shape, or form. And, and we've been talking about changing expectations over the course of the last month. And what the first advent of Christ tells us that we unpacked is that God doesn't necessarily show up to change our circumstances. Like, he's not going to show up to give you a new job. He's not going to show up to give you a new romantic partner. He, uh, we, like, we unpacked that in so many different forms and ways. He's actually, what we learned is he comes and he shows up to change us. To change us. That's actually why God comes and shows up, to change us. Why? So that we could do the Christmas work throughout the rest of the year. And, and it's typical for us to think of the opposite. It's typical for us to think of the opposite, that, that God shows up to make my life easier. But in fact, when we see what Jesus was up to, we find that he showed up to make the life of these 12 dudes pretty difficult. Really difficult, but joyful. But joyful, incredible, fulfilling. 
to make them ambassadors of his, his work, his Christmas work. He changed them and empowered them to do that. Now, and he still does it today. Now, now God changing us, it could invoke a lot of different things and a lot of different feelings and thoughts within us. Perhaps it's completely unwelcome. God changing me? I don't need that. I don't need that at all. No, thank you. Um, perhaps it's actually welcome. Yes, God, please change me. I see some ways in, in my life that I would love some change and, and I feel incapable to, to make that happen myself. Please, God, change me. Uh, perhaps it's scary. Uh, perhaps it's scary. Like, God's going to change me? Like, one of those, one of those like, old makeover shows like 10, 20 years ago, you know? Like, see, God's going to come give me a makeover? Like, that's a little bit scary. I feel a little bit out of control here. I'd like to know what that end product looks like before I give him permission to change me. And perhaps this is where I want to spend most of our time today. Uh, perhaps it's unbelievable. Perhaps you're skeptical. Perhaps you've been told this before, that God changes his people. And over the course of, of months and years, perhaps decades in the faith, because I can actually point at some things that I've wanted God to change in my life that have not changed at all, that feel very much the same as day one. Perhaps change is unbelievable to you. Perhaps you have always left empty-handed from God when it comes to change. And perhaps you've concluded there's plenty of other people that he can use for his Christmas work. Why doesn't he just use them? I'll just let them get it done. Why bother? Anyways. And so you may have come to lower your expectations with regards to God changing you. But by way of the gospel, I do want to reiterate that Christianity, it promises not just change, but transformation. Not just tweaks, but metamorphosis, I suppose you could say. To take old selves and turn them into new selves. This is what the promise of the gospel is. And this promise that God can change us like this perhaps has become unbelievable for you. And when we become skeptical of this extraordinary promise, I find it's usually because we're missing a few crucial pieces that actually function to deliver that change in our lives. The pieces that are really there to empower change, empower God to change us in our innermost beings. Now, don't get me wrong, we may understand a good bit about Christianity. We may understand that Jesus came to save sinners, that he died on the cross to take care of sin, that he rose again, that he invites us to be in meaningful relationships with one another, to comfort one another, to, to urge one another on in, in the life of faith. We may understand, all. We may, we may get that bigger picture of the gospel while missing the pieces that actually change us, that actually bring about change in our own lives, the change that these scriptures seem to speak to so what gives? What gives? Have you ever spent hours putting together a puzzle only to find that some of the pieces are missing? I have children. This happens often. They're somewhere. I have a cat, too. Gosh, why do they eat the puzzle pieces? And instead of being able to celebrate the amount of work you've done so far on the puzzle, what, what can you do? You can only commiserate and lament that you cannot finish it. It's miserable. It's miserable. Perhaps you're there. Perhaps you've worked really hard on this puzzle called faith in Jesus, and there's big gaps here that you're not seeing. And so today, I just want to give you some of the most crucial puzzle pieces that I see people losing as I talk with people and help them through these tensions that, that I see falling under the table for them that I, maybe they, their cat ate, I'm not sure. Because without these puzzle pieces, people who aren't Christians, they might say, I don't really get how this whole Christianity thing actually works. 
Um, those, who are, are, those of you who are, are new believers, that they, you might say, where did the zeal and the excitement of faith that I had when I first became a Christian, where did that go? It's gone. Maybe some of us who are, have been believers for a long time might say, why am I stuck? Why have I felt stuck here for a long time? Why can't I move on from here? Isn't the Christian life supposed to be more fulfilling and successful than this? Those of you who are mature believers might say this, where do I find the grace, uh, the grace and patience to put up with the bride of Christ? <laughs> this sinful yet loved group of people, individuals, where do I find the grace and patience to actually prolong my, 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 my walking alongside of them to extend them grace? Now, now, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're saying any one of these things, the puzzle pieces are the same. They're the same. And I, I just want to unpack three of them. That the most commonly lost puzzle pieces that I see that tend to keep us from seeing and expecting the gospel to change us. All right, so the first one is going to be, well, let's start by reading this here in John 3. John chapter 3, uh, verse 16. You guys probably have never heard this Bible verse before, okay? John 3, verse 16. i put it up here on the screen for you. There it is, okay. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So it's probably one of the most popular Bible verses perhaps in the, old, in the whole world. You've heard it over and over and over again. What happens, what, what tends to happen when we hear things over and over again? We become desensitized to their actual effect. We become desensitized to their actual power, the, the, the actual potency. And what's this verse about? Well, it's, it's about God, yes, yes, but what specifically? It's about God's love. It's about God's love. And, and what displays God's love? That he sent his only son. Okay, so now we have a delineation between gods. John has already let us know that, that this son is also God at the beginning of this book, in John chapter 1. So, so we have God sending God. So we're kind of in the realm of, of what has been referred to as the Godhead, the Trinity, um, the confusing, counterintuitive, kind of three persons, one essence kind of stuff that you've heard uh, talked about at church before, but probably haven't grasped why, because it's beyond human comprehension in a lot of ways. Uh, side note, if you're going to make up a religion, just leave that part out. Okay, just leave it out, you know. You, you just don't do that part, you know. Someone, well, someone like 600 years after Jesus did just that, you know. Um, but I, I, I digress. Leave that part out. It's nonsensical to have three in one. But what we have here then, at the, at the beginning of this verse, is the love of who? The Father. The love of the Father. Because he has sent the Son. For who? The world. And when John uses this term world, often he's not actually thinking, he doesn't have the planet in mind. Um, he, and we, we see this throughout the book of John, that he uses the word world, and, and he shows how Jesus uses, used this word world to refer to humanity that didn't like him. Humanity that was against and rebelling under God's rule, that they didn't want it. World really is referring to rebellious humanity. So here, something really profound is happening uh, that we observe with the love of the Father. The Father loves those who hate him. 
those who don't want his rule. Jesus said, said, the world has hated me. When the world hates you, he'll say this to his disciples, remember that it hated me first. But I'm here. The Father loves this world, and he has sent me to give up my life for it. The Father has a, a deep, deep love for those that he imagined, that, that, that he planned for, that he created, provided for, yet don't want him in their lives in any way, shape, or form. A love that is so deep, so profound, that he departs with his one and only son in order to give humanity a chance at experiencing his love once again. It's, it's completely profound. This is love of your enemies. When Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, this is why he says part of that is loving your enemy. Because this is exactly what the Father does. He loves his enemy so much so that he'll give up the Son for them. Is this what you think of when you think of the love of the Father? If you're struggling to see him change you and see him transform you, perhaps not. Perhaps you might think that, that the Father is indifferent towards you, that he, that he, he's very, that he doesn't really care about you. And, and you might convince yourself of this logically. There's eight billion people on the face of this earth. Who am I to think that the creator of the universe might consider me? Why would he care for a little soul like me, right? On the surface, it looks like humility, like, like you know your place in the universe. But we have to be careful because we're so prone to self-deception. And because, you know what, it's actually oddly convenient to think God is indifferent towards you because once we think that God hasn't picked up any responsibility of love towards us, what does that release us from? A response of love towards him. Often this is under the surface with this statement, I don't think God cares about me that much. No, it, it's, it's self-deception. It's complete self-deception. It's false humility. It's mind games so we don't have to pick up responsibility towards him. He's completely obsessed with you. This relationship with the son that he has had from eternity past that is described to us in the scriptures as this overflowing fount of love that they experience uh, oneness and, and, and love and acceptance of one another in this profound way that we can't even understand because he's an infinite being, the Godhead. He's willing to give that up for finite beings that he created that hate him. It's remarkable that he'd turn his back on the sun so that he could be open to you. It's just remarkable. His love is deep waters, is what the psalmists tell us. His love is, is, is stretches through the skies, is, is what the psalmists tell us. And back before technology, that was a bigger statement. Because <laughs> we can go down there and up there now, but back then you couldn't. You can't find the end of it. God is indifferent, couldn't be more of a lie. Couldn't be more of a lie. There, there's another deception here that we must avoid when considering the Father's disposition towards us. And, and if you're struggling to see him change you, you, you might fall into this camp. Perhaps it's because you think his knee-jerk reaction towards you is anger, disappointment, dissatisfaction. That, that, that he looks at you, sees only your shortcomings, and is upset, disappointed, frustrated with your lack of effort and progress. Perhaps you even view him as exasperated, unforgiving, resentful, vengeful. You might say, Ryan, just turn your Bible a few pages to the left. I'll show you a God who's angry, frustrated, pours out his wrath even. I'll show you that. And you're right. 
you're right. But this is the great discovery of the first advent of Jesus Christ, that the Father, the head of the deity, who up to this point in the scriptures is only described as, and we really only see when he shows up, indignation towards sin and those those whom it's attached to in Christ. After that, he's not known any other way than loving kindness, goodness, gentleness even. He had a plan through the life and death of Jesus that that can now be strangely defined as just loving kindness. And it's absolutely remarkable. And he manifests it towards his people, towards his church over and over and over again because of the work of Christ. It's one of the crucial elements of the gospel of Jesus that he came so that when the love of the Father could be extended to his people on earth in very real ways. Paul highlights it in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We're going to throw on the screen here. Uh, it's, it's absolutely profound. Look for the love of the Father here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, read, enemies of God, not wanting God's rule, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. There's that word world again. According to the ruler and the power of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Push, pause here for a sec. Paul, by definition, grew up in the church, and he's lumping himself in here, okay? So he says, I was even trying to follow God, but I was an enemy of God because I was not really conceiving of him, his love and his acceptance and his plan in the way that he wanted it to be done here on earth. Just want to highlight that. But God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up, with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The love of the Father is dripping all over that passage and is what is motivating everything that he had sent Christ and everything that he had done through Christ towards us. You see, we... We must be careful not to mistake. I see this happen a lot, and it was so true in my life growing up. We have this song that we taught as children. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? Jesus, we, we, we can really tend to think of God. We see in the Old Testament, this is the angry guy. He sends good cop. Okay, we got bad cop, good cop. He sends good cop with all full of all of the love for humanity. And we see, okay, the Godhead does love humanity. But no, Paul tells us, his love motivated him to send Christ. That if we're really going to understand the love of God uh, within the Godhead, God the Father is the source of love. He's like the sun, and the beams traveling to us are the sun. Sorry about that. Sun, sun, so confusing. Sometimes churches are named sun life or something like this. I get really confused, but so God the Father, being the source of love, sends the sun. These are the beams of life that travel towards us. We get to see it, know it, and are aware of it. Without the, the, the love of the Father, the Son doesn't come. I don't think he comes. Do you know that the Father's knee-jerk, eternal, never-ending disposition towards you is love? 
goodness, gentleness, kindness. That whenever you go to him, you're guaranteed an embrace. Guaranteed, no matter what. He rebukes all other fathers in this way. You might say, no, not me, Ryan. You don't know who I am, what I've done. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter. In Christ, God's love is always yes for you. God loves you. And here's how you know if you have internalized this great, most profound, wonderful truth of the gospel, the love of the Father, that it's yours. This is how you can know if you're leaning upon it. It's when you feel unloved in this world, lonely, neglected, slighted, rejected, and you feel all of these things and you run to him for that love that you, want, that, that you long for, that you desire. This is how you know you've internalized the love of the Father for you. When you run to him, the other options are depression and self-pity. Which is it? If it's, if it's the latter, you have some head and, and heart-level work to do when it comes to the love of God. Because when you truly begin to grasp the love of God, you run to him when you feel a deficit. You talk with him. You rest there in him. You even begin to delight in him. You commune with him when you feel spurned in this world. You know that by Christ, all causes of of the Father's anger and disappointment or aversion towards you have been taken away completely, and the embrace of God is always there for you. This is why when Jesus taught his followers to pray, he taught them to pray to the Father, to petition his love, and he gives us this great skeleton prayer to pray. I call it a skeleton prayer because they're just the bones of a prayer. You can pray a line, and then you can, I'm pretty sure Jesus meant for us to flesh out more things around each one of these lines to to make it into a full-bodied prayer. Let's read it together. It's in Matthew 6. It's in Sermon on the Mount. There's also a version of it in, in Luke's Gospel. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Therefore, you should pray like this. Oh, when, when you read scriptures, you should always ask when you say, therefore, what's it there for? Jesus just told his disciples and everybody listening at the Sermon on the Mount not to pray like the Pharisees, to be publicly seen by other people, okay? He says, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are all the ways in which we can see God's kingdom come and his will be done in our life? Flesh it out to him. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And in Luke's gospel, there's an end onto that, which says, and thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Petitioning the love of the Father. Jesus says, pray to the Father. Petition his love for all of these things. These are the things that he does for you. Ask him for them. So if you're not expecting the gospel to change, you might just be because you aren't leaning into the love of the Father. That, that might be the case. That might be your missing piece. And a second missing piece goes like this now. If you're not expecting the gospel to change you, it might be because you aren't leaning into Jesus Christ as your mediator. Jesus Christ as your mediator. 
Nowhere is the mediation of Christ more clear in the scriptures than in the gospel of John as well, actually. Um, and, and what John does at the beginning of his gospel is extremely intentional, very intentional, very beautiful. It's, it's his goal to make sure that his reader knows what. Let's look at the first verse of John, John chapter one, first two verses here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This is John, how he starts his gospel. In a couple verses down, we're going to see that this word is Jesus Christ. And John is telling us this Jesus Christ was God. Nothing short of that. He wants us to know that he was nothing short of God. And what was this disposition of this God-man Jesus when he showed up? You can skip down to verses 14 and, and 17 here in, in chapter 1. Throw on the screen for you. I'll just read them. 14 through 17 here. It says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist testified concerning him and exclaimed, This is the one whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he's existed before me. Okay. It's kind of a parenthetical statement. And then John goes on to say, Indeed, We have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. Grace and truth. That's what John tells us in his first chapter. To tell us about this God-man, Jesus, that showed up on the scene. Now, Now, grace and truth is this unique conundrum that Jesus had where he made friends with prostitutes. He said, other people looked at him and said, this guy's just friends with sinners with tax collectors. And as his relationships and his conversations deepened with them, they changed. They began to leave their life of sin behind and pursue following him and being his disciple. This is the grace of Christ. We love this about Jesus, don't we? Of course we do. Jesus had so much grace for those falling short. And Jesus was also all truth. He condemned many of the religious leaders of his day. He called them liars, hypocrites, all sorts of names. It was a name caller, it's Jesus. He talked about hell. He called all those who would be his disciples to take up their cross daily, follow him. He prophesied judgment on Jerusalem for, for their un, unrepentant hearts. He obeyed the law. He set standards. He demanded everything from his followers, even their very lives. How does this part of Jesus hit us? A little less exciting. (laughs) If you're anything like me. I'm not so sure we love it as much as the grace. But this is how the God-man Jesus mediates between us and the Father. I don't want to say that Jesus' grace and truth are are, are mutually exclusive in any way, shape, or form, but, but we can tend to think of this grace side to Jesus corresponding really well to this notion of him as a human savior. He sees us in our sin He's slow to anger, he's compassionate, he's merciful, he's sacrificial so that he can, he can make up for our shortcomings, bring us back to God. And, and we can tend to think of the, the true side of Jesus as this God side of Jesus. Like that's like more of like the deity form of Jesus, the God mediator part of Jesus. The true side there, he's our godly Lord, saying things like, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect 
sell all you have, follow me, obey my commands. If you love me, you'll obey my... Whoa. Now, I'm separating out Jesus' humanity from his deity here. Um, I'm just showing that, that we have a tendency to do this, and I want to do that uh, really just to ask you this question. Do you see Jesus as a mere man, a mere human savior, or do you see him as a God, godly Lord? Do you? A cursory glance at the Gospels says, this guy's way more than just our friend. He's, not, he's way more than just our pal. He's our Lord. At the end of the day, he's going to tell us what to do, how to do it, and he expects us to listen. We're in a relationship with someone much greater than, than a, a kind guy who died for us to, to settle a debt that we had. How do you behold the Christ? How do you behold the Christ? That's the question. John said in chapter one, we beheld him, we saw him. Most people didn't see what we saw. That's what he's saying. Came to his own, his own did not receive him. But we did. When we saw this guy full of grace and truth, we said, whoa, this is God. This is God in the flesh. He's here. Most people didn't see it, but, but we saw it. A lot of people just saw this extraordinary guy who could do some extraordinary things, but we saw God, not just a man. And here's the thing. Us, as the followers of Christ, we're constantly tempted. It's so subtly tempted, and it can sneak in even without us even realizing it sometimes, to re- reduce Jesus to just a man, not this godly mediator. We can stop beholding him as, as, as God, but he's just, and we, we have this in-the-flesh version of Jesus who is our, our friend and pal and buddy, and it's great, it's true. He looked at his disciples and said, I've called you friends. But he also expects to be Lord in our lives. He's the mediator that has made it so that we could access the love of the Father and then to teach us how to walk the path in order to experience it, the path to God. Also in such a way that others might want to join along. He showed up to be your mediator between you and the Almighty God. Showed up to be a model for us, a standard for us of human, li- of, of human living. So how do you know when you've behold this God-man Jesus? How, how do you know? This is one of the biggest tells. You know you've beheld him when you say, I want to be like that. When you see, it and you see him in these scriptures and you say, oh my goodness, that's so incredibly beautiful. I want to be like that. Does that happen in, in your life? Do you want to be like Christ? Paul said that, that following Jesus creates an intense desire to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Go to Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 3 to see that. I want to be like Jesus. And the good news is that was the plan all along. All along, Jesus showed up to be a mediator so that we could be like him. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that he could be more like himself. He died on the cross so that we could be more like him. He did it so that, that you could respond and sacrifice yourself for those who, who hate you. He did it so that, that you could pour out love for the less fortunate. He, said, he did it so that you could give up things and experiences and things that you desire to see come about in your life because your brother and sister in Christ needs you. He did it so that we could be more like him in grace, in his truth, in his mercy, in his humility, in his kindness, in his goodness, in his gentleness. He did it to transform us into him as a mediator. 
Another way that we know we've begun to truly behold the Christ is when our affections for everything else begin to pale in comparison with our affections for him. Um, what, one way to enact change is to focus on the thing that needs to change, the sin in your life. Look at this sin in my life. I need to change this. I need to, sh- to fix this. I'm not all that, sh- that sure that that is entirely helpful unless we are actually also looking at the end goal of what Jesus Christ is calling to, his righteousness. What we can do is we can look at this sin and we say, I just need to eliminate in this life so I can be neutral again. That's not the way of the gospel. The gospel is, is we're going to talk about this in a minute, the righteousness of Christ being revealed to you that you might leapfrog this, this neutral state and go somewhere else entirely. Sure, you might, you're never going to end up all the way at the top, but you're going to be way apart. You're going to end up above that neutral. That's what it's all about here. He died on the cross. He took our penalty so that we might be delivered from the, the power and dominion of sin, not just not to sin, but to live righteously in this world. And our affections for everything else begin to pale in comparison. All right, so, so the first piece we need in order to expect God to change us was to lean fully into the love of the Father. The second one here was to lean fully into Christ as our God-man mediator. The third thing we need, very Trinitarian today, um, is to lean into the Holy Spirit as our comforter. Holy Spirit as our comforter. Um, In John chapters 14 and 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples at the Last Supper. It's here he tells them again uh, that he's going to be leaving them. He's not going to be coming back. This time they seem to believe him a little bit more than they usually do. It's not just like, oh, he's just going to go get a bite to eat. He'll be back later. They, They start to get worried, and he says, don't worry. I'm sending to you another, which he calls the paraclete in the Greek, which John uses the word paraclete in the Greek. I'm sending you another to be with you. And and he's going to help you out moving forward. He's going to be with you always, each of you always, okay? So so don't worry. The problem with this word paraclete is it's very difficult to translate. Translators have struggled to translate it, opting for words like comforter, counselor. You may have heard helper, advocate. These are all translations for the word paraclete, which Jesus is using to talk about the Holy Spirit. And there's a great tragedy right now in the church. I don't think it's just a Western Christian tragedy. I, I feel like I, it's, it's a global tragedy that's taking place in the church that, that goes like this. When we begin to talk about the Holy Spirit, the focus of attention quickly moves to spiritual gifts. Quickly moves there, leaving behind the, the greater, more foundational, more often experienced and more crucial aspect of the Holy Spirit in our lives for the believer. The thing that actually changes us, the Holy Spirit as our comforter, as our helper, our advocate, our counselor, whichever word you want to use, that foundational part of the, the Holy Spirit, which he extends to each and every believer in the same way so that he might change us and grow us. But there's a tragedy right now in the global church. There's an intense focus on how this spirit might make us look like spiritual superheroes in the eyes of one another. It's a complete tragedy, and, and I mourn it because this is one of the biggest puzzle pieces that I see people losing under the table. The Holy Spirit as comforter. As a pastor, how I wish, how I wish our conversations would be less about the public gifts of the Spirit and more about the private, inward-moving power that he extends to our heart 
We've forsaken the primary to obsess about the secondary. We're like so focused on, on what color the house is to be painted that we let the foundation crumble away often. We've come to treasure the, the outward expressions of the Spirit over the inward riches that he promises to extend each, of, each and every believer throughout the course of their lives when it comes to gospel transformation. You might say, Ryan, calm down, calm down. The Apostle Paul, he talks about these gifts of the Spirit. And it's good to talk about the, the, the gifts of the Spirit. It's important to talk. It, that he gives them, and, and we use them, and, and we're blessed by them, and Christ is glorified by them. But it's three times that Paul talks about these gifts of the Spirit. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 kind of counts. Every passage about the gifts of the Spirit, for each one of them, there's a dozen about the more foundational elements that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, comforts us, counsels us, advocates for us, helps us, helps us. Like in Romans 8, where he encourages Christians, Paul's encouraging the Christians in in Rome, letting them know that they have received the Holy Spirit of adoption, which assures them of the love of the Father, that this Holy Spirit is in their hearts, enabling them, giving them the confidence to cry out to God in this sweet phrase, Abba, Father. Just like saying, Daddy. I've experienced the embrace of God. Father. This is what the Spirit does and produces in our hearts. If the Father is the source of love and, 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 the, and the Son is those beams of lights coming to us, the Holy Spirit is the warmth we feel on our skin as we close our eyes. That's how we experience the love of Christ or the, the love of the Father through the Son in our bodies even. It's, when we do this, we just can do nothing but just proclaim an amazement and wonder. God loves me. I am a child of God. The Spirit helps us experience that. So that's the first foundational act of the Spirit. As comforter for all believers, he pours the love of God into our hearts, assuring us of our place within God's family that nothing can take us out of it. What a great comfort. What a great comfort. And when do we need this most? in affliction, in suffering. And no matter who you are, affliction and suffering, it's part of your life. It's everywhere. It's, there's no getting around it. And, and if in your suffering you respond with uncertainty of God's love for you or, or anger towards God, it's time to run to the comforter. It's time to run to the helper, the Holy Spirit. It's then that you cry out, Holy Spirit, help me. Remind me of the love of the Father, and it's there. You will be assured of his love for you. Have your heart and mind reset on the truth. There's there's so many stories of um, believers being thrown into prison, completely isolated, yet growing so deep and so affirmed and so assured of the love of God for them and their isolation could only come about by the Spirit. That's not mind games. That's a real God showing up in real ways to real people who really needed him. That's what God does through the comforter. The second foundational act of the Spirit um, is the continual 
constant, every moment that we let him, orientation towards the life and teachings of Christ that we might glorify him in this world. That's what, that's what the Spirit's focused on. He's comforting us. He's counseling us that Christ might be made known, that others might behold Christ here on earth. Jesus says in, in uh, John chapter 16, this is where the Spirit will come and he'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That, that, that we are all falling short in different ways and he needs to coach us along in that to help us see it and, and help us see the right way to live and to help warn the world that, that Jesus is coming one day as judge to judge the world. So, everybody remember these WWJD bracelets? I might be dating myself. Fat of the, the 90s, early 2000s. Great fat, actually. It's a great question. What would Jesus do? WWJD. What would Jesus do? Uh, the, the way I understood it in my youth group growing up, you know, was we were supposed to ask one another this question, ask ourselves this question. But you know whose job description it is to answer that question? The Holy Spirit. What would Jesus do here, Spirit? Enlighten me. Give me insight. Remind me of his teachings. Show me of his ways. What would he do? It's on his job description. He always has the best answers. This This is the Spirit as counselor. When do we need it most? Temptation. There's no getting around that in this life either. You're going to need it every day. Every day. Without relating to the Spirit in these foundational ways that he's meant to counsel us, guide us, comfort us, God is really hamstrung in his efforts to change us. He really is. We just can't do it without him. So don't move on to the empowerment or the anointing of the Holy Spirit without getting these foundational elements down first. Don't worry about expressing the gifts That's not where change actually lies, not true change. True change lies in the more foundational elements of what the Spirit is meant to extend to you in the Christian life. When we reverse the order and focus on gifts instead of these more foundational elements that Jesus talked about the Spirit in, what happens is we get insecure, sinful Christians doing flashy, strange things that in the short term might yield some fruit, might give Jesus some glory, but years later down the line, you look back on it and it feels kind of awkward. Kind of cringe a bit. I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> I cringe at some of the things. I got it wrong. I had it backwards. I skipped over the comforting and the counseling of the Spirit. Don't, don't do that. All right. So as I counsel people towards change in their life, and these, we, we, Dave and I do this often, and we've met with almost all of you. This is one of the great things about, that I love about our church. Is I just have met with so many of you, and we've talked through a lot of these things even, you know? And, and these are the main puzzle pieces that, that I find that we've all lost under the table. The love of the Father, Jesus Christ as mediator, and the Holy Spirit as our comforter and our counselor. So if you feel stymied and stuck, as you th- and, and like looking at 2023, you contemplate change and you just feel overwhelmed. I hope that you can begin to pick up one or, or several of these puzzle pieces that will give you the strength, the power, that you can reorient your mind on who God is, that your heart might be open to him. That's, that's my big hope. That's my big hope for you in this year. Um, people often 
tell me that they just love it when I pray. They said, man, Ryan, when you pray, it's, it's so powerful, and it's such a gift that you have, and I thank them for encouraging me, and move on quickly because I get awkward and people encourage me and give me compliments. And, and uh, that's probably one of the reasons why, it definitely is one of the reasons why I don't compliment other people too. It's just like comments are awkward for me, you know. It's one of the ways that I just need uh, the Lord to change me this year um, is to be able to receive and give compliments. I'm trying to work on it. But, but um, perhaps my prayers are empowered by some gift, but I'm actually not so certain. I'm, I think the majority of the power of prayer comes merely from knowing who the Trinity is, knowing what their roles are, and then praising them, thanking them, and petitioning them according to what they do in this world. That's prayer. That's as simple as I can put it. When you pray, when you really understand the Godhead, and you really understand that the Father plans, when you really understand that that the Christ fulfills, when you really understand that the Spirit empowers, your prayers are are almost prayed for you. These are the foundational elements we need in order to relate with God for change. There are no special tricks or procedures. I don't have regimens or resolutions or intentions. I don't have lists for you to do in order to achieve them, but I do know that if you make it a priority to to pursue and understand the love of the Father for you, to to pursue and understand that that Christ is your mediator, to to seek after the Spirit as comforter and counselor when you need him countless times throughout the day, that if you do those things, God will incredibly change you over the course of this year. That is certain. That is certain. Now, it's mystical in some sense to commune with the invisible almighty God. I get that. It's mystical. It's awkward. It's difficult. It's frustrating. It's all of those things. It's all of those things. I get it. I'm not saying it's simple. But if we don't set aside the time to try, it won't happen. So I don't know what you need to do. For me, I need to leave my phone in the other room. I need to leave my phone. <laughs> like, There's no hope for me if the phone is in the same room. I'm a prisoner to the phone. I need God to change me in that way, right? I think all of us do. May we not be a prisoner to our phones. But he's given us, when you get stuck, he's given us all these prayers, the Psalms. Treat every prayer you come across in the scriptures as skeletons for you to enflesh and make full-bodied prayers, for you to apply to your life, for for you to to feel the needs and the wants and the desires that you have and attach them to how these uh, these great men and women of God have prayed throughout the scriptures. They've coached us. They're skeleton prayers. Throughout the Old Testament, the Psalms, if you notice in, in, uh, in, at the end of John, John chapter 17, Jesus has this amazing high priestly prayer. Paul is constantly dipping into and out of prayer in his letters. There's longer ones than Colossians 1 and Ephesians 3. There's just all of these prayers that, that can help us keep us on the right rails to commune with God and give full body prayers of our life to him. And I, I pray in 2023 that you're able to experience it it's so life-giving. It's so satisfying. You're going to get off track. You're going to be empty at times. That's why I restart every month. We need to restart every month. We need to restart every week, sometimes every day. But if you ground yourself in the love of the Father, the mediator of Christ, the comforter and counselor of the Spirit, you will see him do incredible things. You will. The gospel promises transformation through the Godhead. Let's pray.